So it looks like you all survived the day, more or less. This is kind of, I'm talking about a few different things. Hopefully a theme will emerge. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. <laughs> uh, I want to start by reading something that, um, since it's Thanksgiving, it's sort of, a, to me, a beautiful expression of the, the real thing that I feel there is to be thankful for. It's from Shanti Deva. As a blind person feels when she finds a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening arising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life, the cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the dharma, It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. That's our true feast of joy, the miracle of awakening that arises in each of our consciousnesses. And the real miracle is that it's an open secret to which every being on this planet, every human, is invited. What's more amazing is, is why so many of us aren't drawn to listen, but that it's so immediate and it's human and this miracle of awakening is accessible to us, not just here on some three-month isolated retreat, but in all situations. It's part of our human condition. It's amazing. Uh, one... I just want to share an experience that in my life has served as a metaphor for this to me, both of the humanness of our quest, the humanness of awakening, and the fact that it is part of all life. It's accessible in all conditions. And it's a metaphor, but it really brought this home to me. So, well, the first retreat I ever did, my first introduction to Buddha Dharma was in um, a town called Bodhgaya in India, which is the town where the Buddha supposedly sat under the Bodhi tree and came to his full awakening. So now it's a real um, sort of a shrine, you know. The, there's a, a descendant of the original Bodhi tree, I guess they say it is. And it's, it's in a big park, you know, with a wall around it, and there's a, a big stupa right next to it, and the tree itself is sort of on a, like on a, has a little concrete platform sort of built around it. So um, when I was there in 71, it was still pretty much a, a dusty little village. And then I didn't go back there again for years and years and years. And maybe, I don't know, five years ago, I went back to Bodh Gaya with some good friends 
And it's gotten much busier since then. But my going there, and I'm not, um, I'm not a particularly devotional person or one who's given to visiting shrines, so my reaction surprised me. But um, in going there and sitting, actually, it's pretty hard to sit actually under the Bodhi tree because it has this locked fence around it. But you can kind of sit near it on, on the, this you know, big cement around and pilgrims make circumambulations of the shrine. You can kind of sit on the concrete wall near it. And I was just sitting there, and I'll describe in a minute the whole hubbub of the scene, but this part that brought the humanness is just being there, and it's this real place, and just this old tree, you know, nothing special. It just, it hit me so powerfully that, oh, the Buddha's not some myth. This was a real guy, you know, maybe he was really sitting in this place. It's not a made-up story. And the potential for freedom is not some, you know, airy-fairy idea made up. It's as real as me sitting here now on this concrete wall. It, It touched me so much. I was just weeping, which is also not that common for me. But just that, that sense of humanness and immediacy. And the second piece of it for me was that it's in the midst of this incredible hubbub. We're not talking about some esoteric, peaceful shrine, you know, in the middle of this beautiful country village. Bodh Gaya is in the middle of one of the poorest states of India. It's really dusty and dirty. And as you walk up to, you know, it's just the regular hubbub of a little Indian street. But as you walk up to the shrine, to the park to get into it, first of all, there's a a huge row of beggars, you know, sitting against the wall. And just before you get to that row, there's a guy sitting there selling little coins. He'll sell you a pile of nine, ten Anna coins for a rupee which is really 90, 100 annas make a rupee, so he's making 10 annas off of it. And then you can give one of these coins to the beggar. Now, a coin like this is basically useless. I mean, it's like less than a penny. You can't buy anything with it. So it kind of, you can buy these and relieve your sense of guilt or whatever, but you're not doing really a sense of generosity, but you're not really doing anything for anybody. And someone told me for these beggars, it's, it's like their job. I don't know if this is true, but someone who lived in Bagaya told me that some of them take a rickshaw from neighboring villages over to their begging spot for the day. I don't know if it's true, but that's kind of the tone of things. This press of humanity getting in, getting out the door. Once I was almost, I was literally lifted off my feet just from the crowd of people trying to go up the stairs and get out the gate of, of the shrine. There's no particular panic. It's just, you know, a lot of people in a hurry to get out the door. And as you're sitting or walking around the stupa, there's pilgrims from all the different Buddhist countries, very touching. They come in huge groups from tour buses with loudspeakers, from Japan, from Thailand, from other parts of India. There weren't any Americans or European big tour groups when I was there. You know, going on talking really loud. There was a, 
a whole group of Tibetan monks doing some kind of three-day chanting puja, sitting on the side with their horns, really neat. There was a, a literally a mad Tibetan woman who would run around screaming and yelling at anyone who sat down, starving dogs, all kinds of people coming and going. Uh, Hindus who would fish, they would take fish out of the lakes in the park and put them in little plastic bags and sell them to Buddhists because then the Buddhists could earn merit by freeing the fish back in the ponds. (laughs) This is... (laughs) I'm not making this up. So you can't really, you know, get into, oh, how beautiful, how esoteric, how sublime, you know. It's the whole show. And that's really what became the metaphor for me. Is that sometimes, I mean, sure it wasn't like that when Gotama was sitting under the tree, but still it was so powerful and it was no sense whatsoever of seclusion from the world or of any of the craziness of the world. And again, it brought it home to me that that freedom or our potential for awakening doesn't have to wait until we can do a three-month retreat or we can set about the perfect circumstances or our mind is calm and quiet. You know, there's nothing to wait for. There's no reason to wait. As Shanti Davis says, it's a feast of joy and we're all invited. All we have to do is accept the invitation. And it's so amazing how difficult and how scary it can be sometimes to accept that invitation. Or when we look around in the world, how few people really do. Again, something I think Joseph commented on this when we were in the the other big thing to do in Bodh is hang out in the chai shop and drink chai all day. I mean, there's not really much else to do. So hanging out there, and he's commenting how there's so the people that live there, guys who run the chai shop, good people, he's known their families for years, but they're not really interested in awakening, or in so many wonderful Buddhist teachers come through Bodh Gaya of all the different traditions. And the people that live there, you know, they're interested in, you know, they're nice, like to meet the people, but there's not this pull to to really delve into the teachings, to awaken. And it's so clear that even having the opportunity handed to us isn't always enough. So again, what that brings up in me is such a joy and appreciation of for all of us that something in us has recalled us to our true selves, has awoken in us the willingness to really begin exploring, to come home again to what is true, knowing you might not have known it before you came here, if this is your first retreat, but now you do. You know that it isn't easy. It isn't necessarily fun. It isn't every moment a moment of you know, the joy of the miracle of awakening arising in your consciousness. It is, you just don't notice it. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's tough. One of the Nisargadatta says that the search for reality is the most dangerous of all undertakings because it will destroy the world in which you live. I mean, it's true in a way. It's not that it obviously destroys the outer world or makes us unable to live in the normal world, but it subverts all our perceptions. It destroys the world in which we live by destroying our clinging to all of our previous preoccupations, all of our holding on to this constant birth and death of the self. It destroys our sense of what is true and who we are. And this obviously can be very unsettling. But it doesn't it it doesn't mean, and I want to emphasize this, that you know, for once we awaken, we don't live a normal life. In fact it might be more normal than ever. This is from a Sufi Master, the true person of God sits in the midst of her fellow men and rises and eats and sleeps and marries and buys and sells and gives and takes in the bazaar and spends the days with other people and yet never forgets God even for a single moment. That's the difference. And for some reason... when we're still in the grip of the constant rise and fall of the self that still clinging to that of our old perceptions, it feels like the world we know will be destroyed. And that opening to that insecurity can be so frightening and so threatening. And not knowing that on the other side of that is a life that's so filled with joy that never forgets the truth, even for a single moment, and yet is thoroughly in the midst of all beings, of all life. Not at all separated, in fact, more completely connected than ever. The Buddha said once that what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer thirsts after it. Just a shift of perspective. And that main shift can come about. Part of one of the things we're observing here with our mindfulness, when we begin to explore what we're calling this continuous I, when we let go of that constant referral of every sense contact back to a sense of me, you know, there's a sound, I'm hearing the sound, There's a thought, I'm having the thought. It's not even that gross as the thought, I'm having the thought, but that moment-to-moment referral of experience back to some unquestioned sense of solid self. One reason I think it can get so disorienting as our consciousness sort of lets go of old perceptions and assumptions as our mindfulness strengthens and we begin to explore more 
because we begin to see it's not that there's some solid I, you know, that we have to somehow see and define and annihilate, you know, and then we're scared. What am I going to do when there's no I? But as we begin to look, we see it's more there's this sense of the birth and death of sense of me, Carol, separate. That birth and death of that sense arising and passing so quickly, almost moment to moment. Again, so fast we don't see it. It's actually much more simple than some solid thing we've got to get rid of. But on the other hand, it's so subtle that you can see why it can be hard to see through. Or more so, if not even that it's hard to see through, but we see through it once and then we wonder why in the next moment is it back? I really saw it at that time. I mean, how many times have you had the experience of a new layer coming up? Oh, no, I dealt with that one before. I saw it to the depths. I really understood it. Something's wrong. It's coming back. You know? Nobody knows that. Yeah. <laughs> it's because in some way we keep falling back into this sense of unchangingness, this sense of permanence. So what we can begin to do with our mindfulness, not think about it, not analyze it, forget it. We do that way too much. But when there's that, just that subtle sense of me, don't try to figure it out, but just turn the attention back on of what you're calling me. It's almost like you can note it the same way you note any other sensation or thought or experience. Just for example, it's when I'm when I'm practicing and it's to the point where the noting is very, very steady, I've started to notice that almost every maybe every third note I make might be self or me or Carol. That's the note. But what the note, the perception that the note is arising out of is a different experience every time. And so that's why we need to turn around and look. We say, oh, there's me again. There's me again. There's no again. One moment, it might have been a subtle sensation. Another moment, it might have been just a sense of contraction. Another moment, it might have been an image. Another moment, it might have been a thought. Another moment, it might have been, again, a sense of contraction. And as soon as we turn our attention to it, we see that so-called I is vanishing. As soon as it arises, it's vanishing. And the next moment, another's arising. If you really look at it, you'll see that one, too, is vanishing. And the only reason there's continuity is because we don't really look. And we think, oh, that felt the same as the last one. We don't think that. We think it is the same one. If there's no mindfulness. With mindfulness, when we turn on to the experience and really look at it, we see all it is is contact, sense contact, knowing, feeling arising, and without mindfulness, some clinging, some aversion. And it might be as subtle as that, or it might be, as you know, 10 miles down the road and worlds and worlds away from here and feeling much more solid. But it's it's all the same process. I find it really fascinating to just keep turning around and looking at that, not trying to get rid of something, not on some big crusade to rid the experience of I. It's not an enemy. 
It serves us well in functioning in life when we see it for what it is, just a sense, a contraction, a clutching of experience, a, a holding on and solidifying. It's what we call identification. All that's happening is just contact, sense experience and knowing of it, perception. I just want to briefly mention, not really go into them, but to put it in your minds again, because it's been talked of before, in this, in this looking at the experience in the moment that's being grasped and experienced as I, it's going to be one of the five khandhas or skandhas in Sanskrit. And just to mention what they are again, we might be experiencing a sense of body, body sensation. And as you know, probably all of you have had at times the experience of there's just tingling. There's no sense of anything else going on with it. And the difference between when it's tingling and my tingling. So that's one way sense of body when grasped gives a sense of self. It can also be more subtle, not so much contracting around the particular sensation, but more uh, around an image that we don't quite notice of body. So for example, tingling, and there's the mental image comes up of the knee, or the mental image comes up of the whole body, and there's actually sort of a identification, a clutching around that image, which is actually mental. This isn't the body, but it's around an image of it. Or sometimes for me, there'll be a subtle, like a felt sense, almost an imagining of my whole body. When if I'm really attentive, there's just sensations, but then this felt sense of it landing in the body. Or even looking in the mirror. Or even remembering how I looked the last time I looked in the mirror as I'm sitting here. And that's actually all mental. That's actually not the body. But in a way, it's one of the ways that subtle sense experience can be clung to and it gives us a feeling of solid body. Of course, there's feelings. The second one of the skandhas, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, which we've talked about (laughs) quite a lot, and how the clutching around any of that experience gives this real sense of separation of me and other. Perception is the third, that quality of recognition, which includes memory. And interesting to notice that the grasping of perception, the identification with perception, and again, this is so fleeting, but it can be so solid. Just for example, how much do you trust your perceptions? You know, as I think I talked about once, how the perception that we're unchanging is a total delusion. But on an even, on a more noticeable scale, have you had the experience of really having the perception of someone else here who you don't really know? That person is so arrogant. They're so angry. They're so self-centered. They're so whatever. And a couple days later, as the... uh, mental state affecting consciousness lifts. And you look at that person again and you realize, oh, I think maybe it wasn't them that was so arrogant and so angry and so self-possessed. Maybe it was me, you know. But when we're really 
or vice versa, if you're filled with metta, our perception of people is one of friendship and people look beautiful and we see the light shining out of their eyes and we see, you know, we just see them as walking embodiments of truth. And, which we are, but, you know, generally if someone at any of those moments came up and said, do you think your perception could be a little off? We'd probably fight to the death. No, I know what I'm seeing and don't take it away from me. You know, solid clinging. Consciousness, the fourth sankhara, that quality of knowing, of hearing and the knowing of it, seeing the knowing of it, the awareness of it, you could say. Again, very subtle to notice. Often we, it's sort of like a foreground background shift. We're more aware of or in some subtle way tuned in more to the appearance that's arising, the sound, the sensation, the thought, whatever, and not quite as tuned into the knowing quality. But sometimes that knowing quality is very vivid. But again, rising and falling so rapidly with each new sense contact that first it's even hard to notice and then it's hard to see that it's coming and going. So that sense of continuity gives a sense of solidity and it can be a subtle clinging to that. Subtle clinging to the sense of being the knower. A subtle clinging to the sense of being the witness. It's tricky. And the fifth Skanda, Kanda, is called Sankaras or mental formation. So that includes everything else. Emotions, thoughts, everything. One I'd particularly like to just point out is that of intention. Because you can see how that arising of intention is so easily clung to and identified as self. You know, I'm getting up. I'm going to generate metta. I'm reaching. You know, who's deciding to do this? Who decided to come here? It's very easy to identify with intention. So I'm just mentioning these. I don't want to engender a lot of thought. But if in that moment of realizing there's I in the picture, just turning around and seeing what's the I emerging out of in that particular moment. So I'm just wanted to bring these up as possibilities. They call the five skandhas of grasping, really. And it's, again, not that if there's no grasping in that moment, they all fly apart and we're not a human being anymore. But the sense of permanence, that sense of referring everything back to some unchanging thing comes when there's grasping at these experiences. And sometimes that sense of contracting around, identifying with a personal experience, uh, a sense experience, is obvious and easy to see and can even be quite funny how it just arises out of nowhere. Sort of like the miracle of awakening. Sometimes the miracle of sense of solid self just seems to arise out of nowhere. One time... And it's funny to me when it's like that. One time I was doing a self-retreat in a very beautiful uh, 
hilly area in California. And I was sitting up on the side of the hill on a, on a bench, just looking out pretty high up. And in one of those states where the mind just feels open and clear and experience just arising and passing, no contracting, no sense of me, and some turkey vultures were flying out of nearby pines and whizzing past really close, you know, like, ah, oh, far out, you know, and just appreciating whatever was arising. And this went on for some time, and there were more and more of them, and there were like five or six flying around. I thought, wow, this is far out. And then suddenly, and I guess what I first identified with was seeing, and then there was a thought. I realized they were circling, and I realized they were circling me. (laughs) And I had this moment, just a total panic. I had to hold myself. I I just want to stand up and scream, I'm still alive. (laughs) So, you know, it's funny when it's so solid, so quick, and it's always right after you've been sort of thinking, I'm so free. I'm so open. (laughs) Not yet. Mm -mm. (laughs) Mm-mm. But other times, the sense contact that gives rise to that grasping contraction of self is so fleeting and subtle that we don't even notice the contact and we wonder, you know, why did the self seem so solid? But it really takes a situation like this, perhaps, of silence, of some kind of uh, development of mindfulness and concentration to even notice these subtleties. And then it gets very interesting. Last year I was sitting and um, this is where I first really saw how this could work. So out of just such a little nothing experience, I was just doing walking meditation and nothing special, just present. And I just kind of, I had a turtleneck. I just kind of ran my finger under my turtleneck. And that contact somehow gave rise to a sort of uh, unclear, just a sort of um, a physical memory, how to say. It's almost like a physical memory of myself, not even very formed. It wasn't something I could have put words to at all. But it was just this feeling of myself, and then it gave rise to like a, a stronger image of myself walking and then another memory of myself this time more solid and then sort of a projecting out I wonder what I look like walking back and forth like this I think I was sort of bouncing up and down wondering if I looked a little weird and all of a sudden I realized there was this solid construction just a very very subtle experience that was very interesting to me There's nothing to fight or hate about that, but it just gave me some information of of how it can seem so empty. And suddenly the awareness of that emptiness seems to have vanished, and in its place there's this sense of Carol again doing her little dance. Very quick, very subtle movement. And in the seeing of it, it just all fades away again, no problem. So I find it 
fun to explore, fun to play with. Gross or subtle, doesn't really matter. But knowing this, it's not something to fight or to be afraid of. Yes, sometimes fear comes up when our little cozy sense of security and permanence gets threatened. It does bring up fear. That's okay. That's just fear coming up. But I mean, in the bigger picture, sometimes not out of fear, but often people will talk about, well, you know, who wants to live like that, detached and dispassionate and not part of things? So again, you know, that's that's not how it is. It's just the reverse. It's not about a gray, empty life. Nisargadatta again. The world, the sense of self, by its very nature, is painful and transient. But when you see it as it is, you divest yourself, you rid yourself of all desire and fear. When the world does not hold and bind you, it becomes an abode of joy and beauty. You can be happy in this world only when you are free of it. Happy in this world. Free of it doesn't mean rejecting anything. It really means liberated from our enclosed and resistant sense of self and liberated into a life of real beauty and joy. It's really a movement from a life of clinging and fear and trying to control what can never be controlled into a life of faith, of deep trust, and of deep surrender. And scary as that might be, or difficult as it might be for us, it's so miraculous. And I think everyone here has touched that somehow, somewhere, over and over and over, or none of us would be here. No one comes and does something like this just because you don't know what else to do for three months. So in a way, it's the movement of faith that allows us to begin to open to the miracle of awakening. And it's the retouching of that truth that lets us move deeper and deeper into a life of faith, a life of trust and surrender. I read one one place, but I don't remember where, a definition of faith as the drive towards that which cannot be described. I really liked it. The drive towards that which cannot be described. It, it really fits with my personal relationship to the experience of faith as trust. Trust in that which cannot be described or defined or known or owned or contained. So the, sometimes two types of faith are spoken of. I uh, just want to mention it briefly, that the first sort of reawakening to our true nature, for recalling of the beauty that we really are, is sometimes called bright faith, 
where we might be inspired by anything, by uh, another person, by something we've read, by just seeing another yogi here, by hearing a story of some master in the world, whatever. That first recalling of what we really are awakens a kind of a brightness in the mind, a joyous confidence, a real energy. You know, you really have this, yes, I'm going to do this, I'm really going to commit my life, whatever form it takes. And that's wonderful, because that's what gets us going. And it can be reconnected with, reawakened throughout our life. And in fact, in times here, when you're really feeling like faith is gone and you don't know what you're doing here and your practice is dead, you can't find any, the second type of faith is verified faith that really deeply arises from your own experience. And you think, I never had any experience that any faith could arise out of. You can reconnect, you can find ways to reconnect with so-called outer inspiration to, to reignite this bright faith, to recall ourselves again to the miracle of awakening. And that again can give us the energy to come back to our own experience, which will open into verified faith. For me, over and over talking to yogis, to you guys in interviews, it awakens a sense of bright faith in me so much to see just the light of truth, the light of Dharma kind of shining out from everybody. And it wouldn't be in the moments you might think either. But just to see how, how the truth kind of works its magic, no matter how hard <laughs> we try to stop it. We do everything we can not to just be with what is, but the Dharma is stronger than we are. So it just shines out. And every day something happens that just wakes up again in me, this deep appreciation and love of the Dharma and total awe of how it works, of the mystery. You can see it in other yogis here, how sometime when you just don't have the juice and you see someone working really hard. Or it can be tuning into someone who's in difficulty and seeing that they're really meeting that difficulty with fortitude or with their own faith. Or a sudden spurt of compassion comes up in your heart where you least would have expected it. Whatever. Just know that this tuning in to whatever inspiration awakens the bright faith can be a way back into the trust to drop into your experience. And out of that will come what's called verified faith, which is intuitive experience, real understanding that comes from your own experience, whatever experience it might be. It might be one of impermanence. It might be just a... a, an emptiness, interconnectedness. It might be of the power of metta, of the non-separation. It might be just a moment of suchness, standing in the snow, whatever it is. A sense when again we touch the possibility. And when that's been touched for ourselves, it's called verified, because if someone comes up and says, no, that's not so, you, you don't even want to argue. It doesn't matter. We know. We know it's not of the mind, but we know, and no one can take that away. 
And from that place, it becomes possible to move more and more into this trust of the unknown. And we're all living in the unknown anyway. Mostly we try to control it. A life of faith, to me, is really moving into that with trust. Not to confuse it with getting more knowledge, trying to understand things, trying to be able to explain everything, but more seeing the way it's been for me is the more I practice, the more I look, the more I see that I don't know anything. And I know even more of nothing than I thought I did, you know, 20 years ago or last year. And it gets more and more okay not to know anything. This is a science article from the New York Times. It's talking about astronomy. See, this is from a few years ago, but then I heard an update on the radio the other day. The update wasn't very different, so I'll just read this. Astronomers discovered uh, the largest galaxy ever. It includes more than 100 trillion stars, measuring more than 6 million light years in diameter, 60 times the size of the Earth's galaxy, the Milky Way, 60 times the size of the galaxy we're in. This galaxy, this new galaxy, 60 times our size, is located in the center of an even larger clump of galaxies, a cluster of a thousand galaxies, called Abel 2029. (laughs) Somehow, okay, if we name it, (laughs) it's controlled. (laughs) But then it goes on to say, this is just the introduction, that they hope further study will provide clues to a mysterious substance called dark matter. Since there doesn't appear to be enough matter in the universe to account for the gravitational forces that would be necessary for all this clumping of all these galaxies, scientists propose the existence of vast amounts of invisible matter that escape detection because it emits no radiation. In other words, they're making it up. They have no idea. (laughs) And according to this theory, 99% of the universe consists of this missing matter. (laughs) (laughs) So confronted with this, see that the more we look, the more we see, it's a total mystery. Total mystery. And that the attitude that really makes life with this knowing possible is one from a, a book I read once. I, well, he called it Radical Acceptance. Radical Acceptance. He says that radical acceptance is radical acknowledgement of the presence of truth at this very moment. The only thing to do is to do nothing but accept truth in all things, at all times, in all forms, in all ways. Radical. To let go to accept 
It is necessary only to give up your fears. Only. But it's radical. Can we accept truth in all forms, at all times, in all ways? Whatever is manifesting, can we accept that radically as an expression of truth here and now? Sometimes. And when we can't, when we feel that resistance, just looking and seeing, what have the resistance, what have I been resistant with today? What hasn't been acceptable as an expression of truth in this moment? And it can be really obvious or it can be really subtle. I know there can be ways that one feels one is accepting, but there's a certain not giving in to the mystery, to the unknowing that actually manifests as resistance. I remember one retreat I sat, I was having wave after wave of grief and sadness. They went on for days and days and days to the point where this one mental image would come up and I'd go, oh no, it's starting, you know. Then I'd start noting, you know, and I really felt like I was feeling it, I was accepting it, I was noticing all the images, I was saying it's okay, it can be here. But very subtly underneath, a certain lack of trust, a certain feeling that, you know, if I was doing it right, it should go already. And really under that was more, it was okay in this moment. And I knew that. I was there with it in this moment. But a subtle fear of what might happen in the next moment. Just a subtle, what if it gets worse? even though I'm totally okay with how it is now. It's not really a problem. This radical acceptance, really living in trust, is knowing that willingness to be totally okay with what is just as it is now, knowing that we never know what's going to happen in the next moment. We have no idea I mean, we think we do. You know, we think I'll keep talking and the bell will ring and we'll walk out and you'll do walking. And often what we think will happen sort of happens in the big picture so we get this delusion that there's some kind of order and we can plan things. But we don't really know what's going to happen in any moment. When you sit down to a sitting, you have no idea what's going to happen in that sitting. You know, can we sit down and just say, whatever happens in this moment, I surrender to the Dharma and just let it happen. It's hard. Just this subtle expectation, trying to arrange experience to meet our expectation, is a movement away from this living and unknowing, you know, manipulating meditation. You know, it's somehow trying to hide the fact that we don't have a clue. If we could just surrender to not having a clue, it's actually not a problem. It's kind of exciting. It's interesting. But on the way there, it's scary. And the the mind so much doesn't like this constantly shifting ground, the sense of uncertainty. And it's so 
easy to fall into expectation. Whether it's expectation trying to recreate an experience you had before. And do you ever find yourself doing that? Trying to figure out just the right amount of sleep. Exactly this amount of sleep and eating these certain things. And at this time of day I had this perfect meditation. How was I sitting? How did I hold my hands? How did I move my head? What was my attitude? And you find yourself falling into patterns, into rhythms, trying to recreate, to manipulate what should happen. This comes out of fear, out of controlling, out of this trying desperately to hide from the vastness of the mystery. It's a way of, expectation is really a way of searching for somewhere to rest. Coming out of this constant shifting ground. And it's another form of control, a sense of self. And sometimes the expectation, the preset idea, almost determines what we experience. You know, so watch out what you're expecting. One of my teachers, like he's so kind of earthy, he said, expectation is like garbage on your head. (laughs) He says, you become what you think. If you think garbage, what do you smell? Garbage. (laughs) So he goes on to say, for example, the thought, I'm not free, I can't know freedom, I'm hopelessly trapped, can set up that expectation, and that's what we find. So just being aware that to stop looking for answers, stop seeking for explanations, stop trying to recreate the familiar, that's really moving into a life of trust and faith. A true warrior is willing to step into the mystery every moment. But the fact is, we are anyway. There's nothing we can do to change it. It's just a difference of, can we do it with grace? Can we really just let go and dance with the changes? Or do we get caught in the resistance and the fear? This is another science article from the New York Times. It's about spiders. And they're talking about, in 1884... After the huge volcanic explosion of Krakatau that kind of just blew up the whole island, all life killed, scorched. And they said nine months later, scientists were you know, exploring to see how life would start coming back. And the first life they found on it was this tiny spider. And they said, how did a spider get here? Because they can't fly, right? And there was no other life there. And so how it gets there is apparently, uh, apparently a lot of kinds of spiders, um, at some point in their life, they do something that's called ballooning. At least that's what they say it here, where they, on the tip of a leaf or so, they you know, attach their little strand of spider web and just let it out and just with that web. And it says that they can go, um, not just baby ones, but really big spiders, They can occasionally reach thousands of meters of altitude and travel hundreds of kilometers before they come down. Just Clearly, they're not directing it with a rudder, you know? It's like, just let go and fly. It could come down anywhere. 
I don't think that's so different from our life. The difference is just how much resistance there is to the willingness to let go and fly. And that's not always in our control. There's something about the mind that really doesn't like insecurity. You know, really, something in the psyche is deeply wounded by this. A couple years ago, a few years ago, at a retreat in Yucca Valley in California, some of, some of you were there then, I think, we had a couple of earthquakes. Not huge ones, you know. The second one was scary for some people, but they weren't huge, and there wasn't really any damage. But for the next two days, hundreds and hundreds of aftershocks, just every few minutes that first night, really. And I didn't actually find the earthquakes that scary. I'd never been in ones before. But after two days of aftershocks every five minutes, there's something that's kind of deeply unsettling about that. Not just to the mind, but visceral to the body. You know, Just as soon as you settle down, and you never know if you have to run outside because it's a big one, because of course the radio always says, 25% chance of the big one in the next 36 hours. I don't know why they do that. It doesn't help much. And the sense of growing insecurity and the mind just frantically wanting to find some solid place to rest, the mind and the body. You can imagine what a world of good it did for the yogis on that retreat. But it was fascinating. The psyche hates it. But it's fascinating to see the resistance that comes up. But that's really how it is all the time. And it's not the unknowing. It's not the mystery that's the suffering. You know, it's the resistance that's the delusion. It's the trying to steer things in some weird way that we think we want it to go. Trying to desperately grasp on, know what's going to happen. When if we could just... Let go from that leaf and let the wind take it. There's really not a problem. It's from Suzuki Roshi. While you're practicing zazen, you may hear the rain dropping from the roof in the dark. Later, the wonderful mist will be coming through the big trees. And still later, when people start to work, they'll see the beautiful mountains. But some people will be annoyed if they hear the rain when they're lying in their beds in the morning because they don't know that later they'll see the beautiful sun rising from the east. If our mind is concentrated on ourselves, we'll have this kind of worry. But if we accept ourselves as an embodiment of the truth or Buddha nature, we will have no worry. We think, now it's raining, but we don't know what will happen in the next moment. By the time we go out, it may be a beautiful day or a stormy day. And since we don't know, let's appreciate the sound of the rain now. This is the right attitude. If you understand yourself as a temporal embodiment of the truth, you will have no difficulty whatsoever. You appreciate your surroundings and you appreciate yourself as a wonderful part of Buddha's great activity, even in the midst of difficulties. 
This is our way of life. If you can appreciate yourself as the embodiment of truth, even in the midst of difficulties, even for one moment, it can change everything. So let's just sit for a moment. 